when we see you, we think of your character in Friends. Is this yeah. like a new departure? Um, it's not a new departure for me personally as an actor because I've done many, many other roles in theater primarily. Uh, but I, it may be a new experience for the audience if they if they are uh, used to seeing me <clears throat> only as the, this one guy. Uh, I hope they'll be pleasantly surprised uh, that this guy is, is is very different from Ross. So. Welcome to part two of our Kissing a Fool episode. Uh, but before we go into real talk, it's time for PP, our patron pitch. This is where we let our patrons know what they can expect in their exclusive patron channel. And we also let non-patrons know what they're missing out on. Um, Alex, we're galloping through the Friends Travaganza. We're just recording week after week. We're kind of building uh, a, a bit of a runway because we're both taking some time off uh, later in the summer. So We've just what got that a means fucking is, stockpile of episodes. Yes. Uh, but what that means is that there are some things that... Uh, that we should be announcing on this episode that we can't quite announce because we're waiting on some some feedback from patrons, such as um, <laughs> our patron exclusive for this uh, month is going to come from patron Jamie Russell. He's picking up our bonus episode for the main feed and also our exclusive episode for the patron feed. Uh, Jamie should be hitting us back with that with the next couple of days. Uh, same goes for the QVRs, but we can give another shout out to the QVRs that Brandon Curtis picked for us because uh, he gave you 2.0 and he gave me Middle Morale, both Indian movies. Mine was a superhero movie. Yours was a, some sort of sci-fi movie. Um, both, One of the most expensive films made in Indian film history. Look at that. Yours yeah. is probably more expensive than mine and mine was a superhero movie. How does that make sense? <laughs> uh, but we did that it, it, kind of like as a supplement to our uh, Suryavanshi episode on the bonus feed. Suryavanshi. Suryavanshi. Also picked by Brandon Curtis. Uh, so a lot of Indian cinema reviews conversation on our Patreon channel. Also, of course, we're going to have our uh, Contrarians After Hours and being this being a Friends Travaganza episode, that means that the After Hours is Friends Travaganza related. More David Schwimmer your way, although it's not David Schwimmer in front of the camera. It's David Schwimmer as a director. Uh, Alex, you had this idea, and I absolutely love it and embrace it. We're going to be talking about uh, Run, Fat Boy, Run, and Trust. Trust from 2010. Not There's like a couple other trusts floating out there. So uh, if you want to watch them before listening to the After Hours, make sure you pick the 2010 uh, movie. It's on Tubi right now. Uh, and well, Trust is also on uh, Pluto TV and Peacock. Uh, please read the plot synopsis before you watch it, though. Yes, it's probably the the most serious out of all the movies we've covered in the French Travaganza by a lot. It's a movie that I've talked to where I've talked to people that have seen it. I'm like, you know, Ross directed that. And they're, <laughs> and they're like, what? Ross Geller? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Max Abbott? <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a it's a powerful movie, but it's uh it's pretty rough. But yeah, I felt it was um for what we've discussed uh, of all the other you know members of the Friends cast, I think it would uh it would have been a disservice to not 
talk about what he's done behind the camera as well because uh, as we've discussed already he even directed some episodes of friends and whatnot but as far as his like film career goes it, this has definitely been a big part of it is going on to directorial work yeah uh and i haven't seen run fat boy run uh, that one if you're in america uh good luck finding it <laughs> Alex and I had to uh, use some of those patron funds to order the Blu-ray. But I, I kind of get the feeling that it is one of those movies that might be easier to find overseas. So to all our uh, our overseas patrons and listeners, uh, let us know if you could just stream Run, Fat Boy, Run anywhere else. I mean, it's kind of weird. The movie with Simon Pegg, Sandy Newton, and Hank Azaria, directed by David Schwimmer, it's not readily available to stream. What's going on? What's, what's the deal there? Um, so David... Schwimmer as a filmmaker, that's our after hours. And then the standard stuff or kind of room floor conversations that don't make it into the main episodes, our pre-recording notes. And by the time that this drops, we might have part five, the, the big finale of the Roxena journey that, that Alex has taken me on, uh, which would be the aftermath, Alex, of the big match. Yeah, there's brother there's a lot that happens in the fallout of that <laughs> that fucker that we need to discuss so we're already over 10 hours with the parts uh one through four and also the the bonus apps we've dropped along the way and uh part five might end up being the longest one yet so yeah go check it out that's uh that's entry level shit one dollar subscription will get you access to that yes go to patreon.com slash contrarian prime check out our tiers one dollar is the first one but then you can just go uh higher up the ranks if you're interested in more of the content just take a look at it and see if you want to contribute and join the contrarian supplements to all of our current patrons god bless y'all you know we love y'all and like as i like to say we're taking applications for new ones so check it out and enjoy it because we sure as shit enjoy making what we post there it's our art our work (laughs) doing the lord's work talking about soria vanche and shit <laughs> uh, with that, with that patron pitch out of the way, Alex, let's dive into our real feelings about kissing and fools. <laughs> You're worried about Sam if she's going to cheat on you? Hey, I'm not the one who went to an all-girls Catholic school till I was 17. What? These Catholic school girls have so much pent-up sexual energy from being denied it as a youth that one day they just flip out lose complete control of themselves and their bodies. How do I know Sam isn't going to freak out and go on a sexual rampage, huh? Do you know some of these countries she's lived in in Europe encourage that type of behavior? It's okay. It's uh, definitely not the worst movie we've watched on this so far. Uh, Yes, that's... I mean, when when our friend Stravaganza includes 3,000 miles to Graceland, Mm -hmm. then, yeah, it's really hard to bottom out. Just give that as a solid foundation of uh, badness. Um, and Charlie's Angels full throttles in there, too. Oh, that, well, that, that that might be Oof. a more divisive opinion. <laughs> uh, 29% on Rotten Tomatoes, as I mentioned in the first portion, February 27th of 1998, it was released. So 29% Julio. We've definitely done ones lower down on the totem pole. So this means a decent amount of people said, hey, check it out. Didn't sound like you're able to retrieve any of these these folks off uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Did you have to go to the tried and true letterbox? Well, actually, there are exactly three fresh quotes on Rotten Tomatoes that did not have dead links. So I was able to Ooh. grab those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, now, when, when we get to uh, our Facebook video, the the preview, then that'll be all letterboxed because <laughs> I run out of quotes then. But here, three fresh tomatoes, uh, starting with Mike Clark from USA Today, who says, In the amusing Kissing a Fool, David Schwimmer of TV's Friends plays a character 180 degrees from the vulnerable, sensitive Ross of Friends. Is this the biggest departure in the Friends extravaganza from, you know... Friends character to movie character? Or is that still Matt LeBlanc? Yeah, okay. So what you need to keep in mind, the caveat to that statement is that I don't think it works and I don't necessarily think it's good. But Matt LeBlanc trying to be an action star, I think, would be the biggest departure. Okay, so this is the the biggest and most successful departure, maybe? Dude, Lisa Kudrow in EZA also. Uh, uh, That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Never mind. Sorry, Ross. Can't win. <laughs> Very appropriate. You gotta, you, I was about to say you got to fuck one of your students, but doesn't he do that on Friends? <laughs> yep. Okay. <laughs> um, Rob Thomas from Capital Times, Madison, Wisconsin. Also from Matchbox 20. <laughs> yes. And maybe Veronica Mars. Uh, he says, the best part of this moderately entertaining comedy is Schwimmer's loudish against type performance. Um I guess that is the standout, right? Even if you don't it like has the movie, to be, given the time period, yeah, yeah, because no one knows who the fuck the girl is, and Jason Lee would still have been a that guy guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and finally, James Sanford from the Kalamazoo Gazette says succeeds both as a look at the competitiveness lurking underneath many friendships, and as an offbeat romantic comedy that allows Schwimmer to convincingly, here we go again, play against type. Mm. So, is this a realistic depiction of a male friendship, Alex? Mm. Based on what that guy said in that quote. Because I get it, being competitive, but being competitive to the point of self-sabotage seems a little weird. You know, it's it's not too far off of the dynamic of a movie that I really, really fucking love. And that's um, I Love You, Man. Uh, in the sense that Jason Segel is just kind of this we're men we're meant to put our dicks in things and like you know the in <laughs> peter clavin paul rudd and that is like super sensitive mm-hmm. and you know very lovey-dovey type and there's god that scene where uh, me and my roommate used to quote it all the time uh where paul rudd walks up to jason siegel's like house as this girl's leaving and he goes hey that was a really pretty girl and jason siegel goes oh yeah i fucked her and like they just keep walking and it's kind of like that's the dynamic between the two characters here the problem is kissing a fool fails where i love you man succeeds because in kissing a fool they try to do the movie thing of like all right so you're gonna do this thing for me where you like make it seem like you like my girlfriend Mm -hmm. and that's just hollywood bullshit and i love you man uh sydney jason siegel at no point in time like ever comes close to like having feelings for hitting on Rashida Jones or anything like that. Nor does, you know, Peter Paul Rudd ask him to, it's just kind of like there are these two guys that have shit in common and are really good friends, despite the fact that their approach to love and women is completely different. And watching this movie, it's like, okay, you have this here. And even they could still pull that off with the idea of like, he's this womanizer and he's this hopeless romantic. And he finds this girl and, 
you know, he ends up falling in love with her without introducing that whole silly element of the. It just seems so narcissistic and makes the Max character so unlikable that he's like, he's the, he's the one that can't keep it in his pants, you know, but he becomes paranoid. So he enlists his friend to try to prove that his wife isn't trustworthy. It's just, it's icky and it's just, it doesn't like as a moviegoer, how does this make me like anybody or it just seems so cheap. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I had, I didn't have I'm not saying I didn't enjoy watching this movie. Yeah. I'm just saying like breaking it down bit by bit. It's just, it feels so lazy as far as screenwriting goes. Um, I thought that you were going to say that the problem with, with this movie lacks that uh, I love you man has is Paul Rudd's charm because uh, and Thomas Lennon. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, every movie could use a little bit more Thomas Lennon, but here I think that like the contrast between Paul Rudd and Jason Segel and I love you man works great point. works so much better than the contrast between David Schwimmer and Jason Lee here because kind of like I said in Concerns Corner Jason Lee is a little too whiny for me to really consider him somebody that's entertaining like I understand the the logic like the reasons behind his behavior in this movie but he's just such a downer and all he does is complain and whine and be bummed he's Ross <laughs> he is Ross do you think uh, David Schwimmer flexed his friend's muscles to get them swapped in the production? <laughs> I, you know, um, we mentioned Greenzo earlier, and that's one of my favorite. I, I don't know when the last time you watched the Greenzo episodes was, but quick recap is he's the the superhero that speaks mm-hmm. about, you know, global warming and stuff. But when the cameras aren't rolling, he's just this fucking dickhead yeah. that's like super <laughs> malicious, and and that's kind of what I hope that was the situation here. I mean, by all accounts, he's supposed to be a fairly good dude, but that's uh, what you're saying would be funny if he gets there and he's like, "All right, here's the fucking deal. <laughs> I'm tired of being this bitch on TV every week." Listen, Jared Greenzo, I'm working with you as a favor. <laughs> wow. You know what? You people make me sick. You act like you care, but you do nothing. Do you even bother to compost your own feces? And you're exactly right. You know, for all the things I just brought up about I Love You, man, that that's the biggest one that I missed out is Paul Rudd in that movie. You just, even when you question his decisions, you just love him because he's so charming and it, he's so convincing. Whereas Jason Lee here, you're exactly right. He's... um. You know what he is? He's Owen Wilson in Midnight in Paris. The difference is Midnight in Paris doesn't ask you to like Owen Wilson in that movie. <laughs> in many ways, it kind of just calls out that he's a bit of a dickhead. Here, this movie is like, no, this is the guy. You know, he's he's sensitive and he yep. writes. And yeah, so <laughs> he's doing the right thing. He's a uh, okay, yeah, I. He sets them up, then he regrets it. It's just, yeah, I, I, I found him really annoying, and I like Jason Lee overall. Like in, in yes, I was about to say this. This is not knocking on Jason Lee. This is talking about the movie at large. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, that is, I think, that the main problem, and I, I think it's weird because this is usually this is the point where I would say it's not his fault. It's the character that's written that way, but. I do think that maybe as an actor, he leaned a little too hard on the pathetic aspects of his character. 
and didn't do much to kind of give him another dimension to where you can be like, oh, he's pathetic and he's a sad sack, but there's something about him that still makes me root for him and makes me interested. And I know that Jason Lee has it in him to do it. So either Doug Ellen told him, uh, no, you need to tone that shit all the way down because we need you to be absolutely like an absolute drag. Or Jason Lee was like, oh, I'm going to play against type and not bring up any of my Jason Lee-isms, which is exactly what this movie needed <laughs> to you know counterbalance so um i think that if you had that relationship that that contrast with jason lee was a more interesting character then i really wouldn't care about the stupidity of the david schwimmer plot you know because like, because they would just be laughing about it and just thinking what i think of the these are two idiots that are going to get their comeuppance but instead, it turns out that through this series of terrible decisions, everybody learns the true nature of love. <laughs> Just come on. I wasn't rooting for that. I, I, if anything, I was rooting for maybe David Schwimmer to get over his commitment issues and, you know, figure it out. But yeah, I, I think it's kind of like what you were saying. I had a good time, a good enough time. I was entertained watching it, but it it just felt like it was hitting so many false notes towards the end that I I wouldn't say it's a good movie. Yeah, it's it was right at the point where people were starting to expect more from movies like this. And one of the things, a few things I did text you about it is like it was a serviceable 90s rom-com, <laughs> but it certainly wasn't any keeping the faith. And I think that I love keeping the faith as many longtime listeners know. And I think that movie as Hollywood as it is and as much as there's no point in that movie where you say to yourself, oh, I'm not watching a movie, you know, that type of thing. But it does such a better job of striking the dynamics between the two guys that are thirsting over the same girl. And, you know, there there was going to be movies coming about pretty soon that changed the, the idea of, you know, the romantic comedy and whatnot. And uh, I think if this movie had come out, shit, three or four years earlier, it probably would have had a better shot at recouping its budget the box office maybe even making a little bit more money but um well but then you wouldn't have had the guy from friends in 95 you would have what would that be like first season of friends second first season? or second yeah i guess yeah it's ross from that show <laughs> well it's obvious that the friends factor did not play in here you know people didn't go out and see it because of that shockingly i don't know well i was about to say i we have determined so far that none of these movies that we've covered necessarily seem to be impacted by the fact that they had someone from friends in them. Yep. The the marketing was around that, but you know, like um, lost in space was a bomb. Uh, Scream two was going to make money regardless. Mm -hmm. Romeo Michelle's bomb. That's become a cult classic. Almost heroes, huge bomb, which we talk about in the episode about <laughs> it could have been just people weren't too keen on going to watch a dead guy six months after he died. Yep. And uh, yeah, so I think we're learning something that way. <laughs> and because it still existed, what do we talk about all the time now? There is no separation between TV actors and film actors. And that was not the case, you know, 25 years ago when this was going on. And it seems what we've learned, and especially from this, because Ross is the fucking... Ross is like the Hulk Hogan of Friends, man. Like he's he's the lead guy. 
Like Chandler's Roddy Piper and Joey is fucking <laughs> Hillbilly Jim or Jimmy Snooka. And Ross is the dude and that doesn't carry over. I mean, let's let's go to the tail of the tape here. The night before Kissing a Fool hit theaters. February 26th of 1998. What season are we in here, friends? We're in season four. All right, Julio. It's an episode titled The One with All the Rugby. Ha! Red Ross. Okay, okay. I know what I've got to do. I've got to go Red Ross. You know Red Ross? Totally don't know what you're talking about. Come on, the time that we were all waiting in line for Dances with Wolves and that one guy cut in front of us and I just lost it? Screamed at him, turned all red? Red Ross! No. You'll see. Ross risks life and limb in his desperate attempt to prove to Emily how tough he is by playing an aggressive game of rugby with her athletic British friends. Monica becomes obsessed with a wall switch in her current... Parenthetically, previously Chandler and Joey's apartment. Okay, so they had already lost the game. Uh-huh. They, okay, yeah. uh, which appears to have no function. She <laughs> resorts to every possible measure in trying to determine the switch's origin, but to no avail. So she eventually gives up. Unbeknownst to her, the switch actually controls the television in her pre. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> this is funny. In her previous, now Chandler and Joey's apartment, Chandler runs into Janice during a manu- manicure session with Rachel and goes to extreme measures to avoid her, which includes telling her that he's being transferred to Yemen to work. Oh my God. This is one of the best episodes. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Well, okay. So the Chandler thing is something I always laugh about because it's the Chandler story is one of the best Chandler stories because it's just so fucking ridiculous that he, he has such a hard time breaking up with Janice every time they get together that he fakes having to break up with her because he's leaving the country and she is so clingy and obsessed with him that he actually has to go through and like buy a ticket because she goes she takes him to the airport she helps him pack she takes him to the airport (laughs) he's waiting for her to leave and she's still waiting so he goes and has to buy a ticket and then she's waiting with him (laughs) he has to go and get in the plane (laughs) but yeah this is a where uh that's very appropriate that's a good ross episode because uh, he's he gets his ass kicked on rugby. Well, I was about to say, to my point of the audience not carrying over, 24.44 million Americans watched that episode for a Nielsen rating of 12.8, the 35 share. If just like half of those people went and saw his movie, <laughs> it would have <laughs> made a lot more money. Do so, you think the critics... Reception, like, or I don't know. Do you think that there were like the reviews were already making the rounds before it opened, or is this one where they uh, embargoed until the weekend it opened? It had to be. It had to be part of it, like the reviews, because that's back when people fucking trusted what the newspapers said. Mm -hmm. Now, and you experience this. This is something constantly that we had to hear at the movie theater when someone would walk up and say hey is this movie good <laughs> and taking ourselves at it i would always default to like what the critic quote unquote critics were saying and i was just like well you know the the critics haven't been too kind to it and they oh what do they know <laughs> oh they're you know the ones they don't like are the ones that are always good that type of shit back then that shit mattered dude 
that's why fucking box office numbers are so much more unpredictable these days. Because who knows what fucking people are going to go out and see. Uh, at this time, though, I do believe that word probably got out pretty quick and people were just like, eh, fuck it. <laughs> I don't really care to go see Ross being not being Ross. Uh, that exactly. is, dude. So this is my kissing a fool story because I've, you know, I hadn't seen the movie until today, but or until yesterday. But I was in Miami Beach visiting my uncle when this movie opened, and uh, I was aware of Friends. I mean, I'm pretty sure I watched Friends by then. But I mm. remember seeing a review for Kissing a Fool in the newspaper. And I was like, I didn't even know that Ross had a movie coming out. And <laughs> and the review, like, you know, the picture above the review was uh, David Schwimmer and Jason Lee, you know, walking towards the camera and he has the toothpick out. And I was like, oh, he looks like a douchebag. And then read the review and the review said uh, that basically it was like, it gave it like a C, I think. And it was like, the movie strains to try to convince you that David Schwimmer can play a bad boy, but it fails. And and the rest is just really formulaic and blah, blah, blah. So I remember even back then having that impression that the movie was a failure, partly because David Schumer was trying to play against type, which is funny why mm-hmm. reading the quotes now, the three quotes that I grabbed, like they all mentioned that the one good thing is that he's playing against type. <laughs> so so really, how do you feel about it? How, how do, you, do you think that he's good or do you think it's just the novelty? Of seeing him not play Ross, he's definitely not good. Uh, I think it is just the novelty of it all. But why wouldn't people like that though? <laughs> well, I guess you like you said because it's not really good. It's just the novelty. There's no but yeah. You you would think Julio that it would be enough to get people to go see it because that's that still to this day we were talking about it before we started recording Rob Zombie's Monsters. The intrigue is it's a complete 180 from what we know of him. He's going to make a PG movie. You would think here Ross being an R-rated movie, yeah, I guess I just it would be it would be interesting to read the contemporary reviews if they focus on the fact that it just sucks or if they call out that it's like a a, a turn of character for him where he's this womanizing asshole. Uh he's what Ross would be if you realized how desirable women find him. <laughs> but he's just so, you know, that, uh, I, I guess I don't know. With these other ones we've done, I kind of can figure out why. Again, I'm not saying it's a good movie, but far, far worse romantic comedies have made much, much more money. And so I'm just trying to figure out what the reason for this underperforming so dramatically was. I have a, an idea. Um, Julio. Can you tell me? You can. I know you know this. What was number one at the box office the weekend of February 27th, 1998? Is it Goodwill Hunting? It's Titanic, baby. Oh, it was t- still uh... fucking. <laughs> of course. I think that really is, we've discovered this because so many of the movies we've done have been tied to that era, being this, Scream 2, and uh, Lost in Space. Lost in Space being the one that dethroned it. It's just like, and just looking at the numbers, even from the box office reports from that weekend, it was still just killing it. And everything was like in its wake. The Wedding Singer was number two, yeah, based on what I'm looking at here. And it's like making a respectable showing, but still. So people would rather go watch Titanic for the fifth time than 
give David Schwimmer a chance to prove that he can play something other than Ross. All right. Domestic charts, February 27th, 1998. Wedding Singer was number two at the box office, bringing in uh, a little under $9 million. Titanic was number one, bringing in a little under $20 million. So, like, the separation was still that dramatic. And then number three was Goodwill Hunting, and that was uh, under $7 million. So, you know, you're talking about, like, the decline is just stark at this point. And I really think it was just that fucking anything that came out around Titanic was just fucked. Like, it, it really does seem to be the case of that. Like, Goodwill Hunting did well for itself. Wedding Singer way overperformed. Ended up with a total growth. That movie made, like, almost $50 million, I think. And... I think any movie that came out that was a potential date movie at that time was going to fail next to Titanic. You add in the fact that it's an R-rated movie, it just mm-hmm. it was the wrong time, brother. Maybe a year later, that shit came out in 99, I think you had you had a better shot at like making money off of it. That's just think, my uh, opinion, of course. Do you think Doug Ellen just tells himself that he's like that movie's great. It was just Titanic that fucked me. I hope so. I hope it. <laughs> I hope he like has gone through multiple television sets because when he's scrolling the channels and Titanic on, he throws the remote at the TV. <laughs> uh, speaking of Doug Ellen, watching this movie, did you go, yep, this feels like a movie directed by the guy that would go on to create Entourage? Uh, in what sense? I mean, just kind of like the, the bro vibe of it all. I gave you $100 million. You agreed to not go over. Because you said I couldn't direct unless we agreed. It's like when a girl asks if you want to bang her hot sister. Of course you say no. Neither of you really believes you mean it, though. What is he doing here? I I guess this is better than Entourage. Oh, man, I don't know. (laughs) You're way too forgiving of that that show and that movie. I am. I mean, the Entourage movie... In the few episodes that I've seen of the show, they're more on the guilty pleasure side of uh, of uh, me enjoying it. I mean, some of them I think are good on the show, but I mean, it's kind of like an unfair comparison because obviously there's more material on Entourage that I can pull from versus 90 minutes of Kissing a Fool. Um, yeah. But I think Jeremy Piven in Entourage is funnier than anything Kissing a Fool has. Just, you know to pick one element. Uh, See, I don't know enough about Entourage to speak to whatever heart it might have. Like, I know that the relationship, like, you know, the friends, you know, the the bonds between these friends. The bros. (laughs) Yeah, they're bros, but but they're bros in a more, because they have more time to develop those relationships. I think they're bros in a more effective way than uh, the broness between David Schwimmer and Jason Lee here. And even the relationships between them and and Samantha. I feel bad because I keep, because I don't know the actress' name, so I keep just calling her by her character, uh, Millie Avital. See, she has the hardest job here because I think that all three of them are written pretty one-dimensionally, but David Schwimmer and Jason Lee have the advantage of having bodies of work that we can kind of relate to. So watching them, we can kind of fill in the gaps a little more easily. I don't know Millie Avital from anything, and the movie no. doesn't really give her any backstory like there's that one moment uh when she's finally when her and jason lee are having her their heart to heart when she talks about a previous relationship and i want to say that's the only time in the movie that you get like a glimpse of what's going on in her head 
And that is, I think, kind of a capital sin for a romantic comedy. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. It just feels very superficial. And I felt that it felt superficial in a way that most people, myself included, I guess, you know, accuse Entourage of being superficial. Yeah. It's also very, very, very dude perspective. Yeah, that too. I mean, that's just, I, I don't think. Despite the fact that it's a woman telling the story. Yes. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that. <laughs> Bonnie Hunt really celebrating uh, David Schwimmer's antics. Uh, yeah, like the David Schwimmer character, I think that uh, a more nuanced filmmaker, a filmmaker with uh, a slightly different point of view, they would make him, they, they would make it clear that he is not a good dude. But I think that Doug Ellen kind of goes to the other side where he's like, yeah, he's. He's an asshole, but isn't he funny? Isn't he charming? Which is also kind of mm-hmm. part of that entourage vibe throughout the series. So I felt like, I was like, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes in. And I'm like, yep, this was definitely a Doug Ellen movie uh, for better or for worse. And that's, I don't know. I mean, it's it's not the kind of movie that would put me off from watching anything else from him Um uh, but it also doesn't make me eager to like go and see what else he did outside of Entourage. You know why this movie is not like offensive? Because it's 90 minutes long. Oh. <laughs> that is nice. That is good. And it moves at a pretty quick pace. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think it helps having the, the Bonnie Hunt character kind of like speeding you through some of the slower moments uh, i guess the trade-off is that you don't get to develop the characters <laughs> as we learned uh recently with drop dead fred uh a movie being 100 minutes versus 90 minutes it can make a world of difference <laughs> if it's not a good movie uh sorry paul i just had to talk shit about drop dead fred again <laughs> no it, it's part of our history now it is it's in canon shared trauma yeah, there's enough here, like <laughs> the suits that David Schwimmer wears and just kind of the 90s aesthetic of the time. Vanessa Angel still looking hot as hell, even uh, a couple years after Kingpin, which not to say like it was that long of a time period, but it was. Um, I just remember that came out when I was a little kid. It was just like I thought she was going to be like Cindy Crawford or Pamela Anderson or something like I was going to see her everywhere. And so. Uh, it obviously didn't work out that way. Uh, so I think if anything, I was nostalgic for her being in this versus every, but like everything else that was happening. <laughs> in it. Um, also that same weekend, Julio, cause I have this information in front of me, dark city with, uh, Kiefer mm-hmm. Sullivan and Jennifer Conley was released. I saw that on Miami beach. Krippendorf's tribe. I don't know if I'm familiar with that movie. No, uh, it's a guy from Jaws. Richard Dreyfus and Jenna Elfman. All right. <laughs> Playing a couple? I, I don't know. It's just I'm I'm reading just the, <laughs> the Oh Hollywood. The brief synopsis here. And then also uh Kurt and Courtney, a documentary on um the circumstances surrounding Kurt Cobain's death, the allegations of Courtney Love's involvement. I've seen this before. It's not good. <laughs> uh, did The Big Lebowski come out the weekend before or the weekend after? The Big Lebowski, March 6th of 1998. So the next week. Good one, man. 
Yeah. Well, I, I was in Miami Beach, man. So I know exactly what was playing in theaters. I watched, uh, I, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I mentioned this on the Goodwill Hunting episode. I watched Goodwill Hunting there. I watched Sphere, um, that terrible movie with uh, Dustin Hoffman, Sharon Stone, and Samuel Jackson. Uh, Twilight with Paul Newman and Gene Hackman. And uh, The Big Lebowski. Jackie Brown, which was at the discount theater by then, I, I think. Yeah, because that was a 97 release. Yeah, so that might be it. But yeah, very vivid memories. And like I said, you know, the review for Kissing a Fool was in the newspaper. So that was like, mm. it had just come out. Did you say you, you saw Dark City? And Dark City, yeah. Listen, Jay, I know I'm not supposed to ask this, but Sam's been raving so much about your book. I was wondering if I could read it. I told you it's not finished. No, it's, it's okay. I would love to hear what you think. Thanks. I'm really into stories about heartbreak. So Judy Greer, her film debut, I mean come on like this girl had it from the the jump i mean she's she obviously is has very little to do here but she's funny and i don't know if we can say enough good things if we haven't already said enough yeah. good things about judy greer the dinner scene i did mean like where she's just like it keeps cutting to her and she's got that little kid look on her face where she's just looking back and forth at people and smiling i thought that was pretty good yeah she's uh at this point, I mean, I know this is entirely not just subjective, but just, you know, because I've developed, I think, like you have such an appreciation for her as a as an actress. Yeah. That just seeing her show up, like she she just came out of that building in the movie, and we're like, ah, it's Judy Greer, and you know, just same man. That was enough to make me happy. <laughs> yep. Uh, here in the IMDb trivia. Uh, the role of Max Abbott was specifically written and designed for David Schwimmer, who's friends with Doug Ellen, as he wanted to break away from his friend's character. Oh, there you go. There you go. I wonder. This Alex, is why the- we got trust. This is why <laughs> yes. trust happened. Yes. I was about to say, do you think that that was um, uh, if David Schwimmer's eventual pivot into filmmaking is, you know, to being behind the camera is because he realized that. As an actor, he's always going to carry Ross with him. Because that was really my main thing when I was watching his performance. And that's why I asked you if you thought that it was good or if it was just a novelty. Because I was having trouble telling. Uh, And it's because when I see him, I can't not see Ross. And I know that that's true for pretty much every cast member of Friends that we've talked about so far. But in this case, it was the most stark of all the <laughs> contrasts because he is trying so hard to play the anti-Ross. Like even Matt LeBlanc in, in Lost in Space, he's not playing opposite Joey. He's not playing Bizarro Joey. He's just no. playing, you know, an action star. So it's kind of like a, a sideways detour. But uh Max Abbott is designed, like you just said, to be the anti-Ross. And but he looks like Ross. He sounds like Ross. <laughs> so it's it was just so hard for me watching it to not just think. But he doesn't it, he doesn't wear the sweaters with like the sleeves that are too long like Ross would. <laughs> not enough for me to make a difference. So I can and you know I've seen David Schumer and other things and I told you you know that he plays uh, Kardashian in the People mm-hmm. vs OJ and that's uh, that works partly because. Man, you know, he's an older dude now, so he has, like, the gray hair, and obviously he 
he still looks like Ross, but I think that there's been enough time that you can kind of buy him as something else. And he's not the, the central figure. He's just like a supporting character. Dude, I hate and, to go uh, back to Greenzo, but that was part of that too. What made it so funny was it was Ross and he's like this dickhead, right. this crazy dickhead. Yeah. Yeah. So I can see him thinking, all right, well, if I'm going to have a career after Friends, it might be a good idea to diversify because I can't rely on just being in front of the camera because I'm part of this iconic show and I play this iconic character and so many people are going to be unable to see past that. And so Kissing a Fool was probably, you know, exhibit A <laughs> when it came to the, the potential problems of, of uh, being Ross, especially now that you're saying that he specifically requested the character to be written as a way for him to break away from the show or from the character that he plays in the show. And then that it's a disaster. Yeah. I mean, I brought this up in the scream Two episode. Courtney Cox has the unique distinction of, in my mind, in the minds of many others, she's Monica Geller and she's Gail Weathers. Mm -hmm. She pulled it off. So these six Courtney Cox is the only one that pulled off having two, like really memorable and you know iconic characters the rest of them when we did lost in space we're like it's just joey trying to be an action star when we did i mean even in the charlie's angels movies in those he's just joey mm -hmm. with matthew perry and almost heroes and whole nine yards he's just chandler and you know we talked about i don't know what courtney cox was doing in three thousand miles to graceland but no one <laughs> really knows what anyone's doing in that movie anyway the only other one that's come close is what I mentioned earlier is Lisa Kudrow in EZA. Because Lisa Kudrow and Romy Michelle is just Phoebe. It works for the movie perfectly, but it's mm -hmm. just she's just Phoebe. And EZA is different. But I think there's something to be said also. That is the movie with the longest time, right? That's the one that had the longest period after Friends that we've watched. At least so far. Yes. So... I think that that has to be taken into consideration. But that's the only one where I watch is like, oh, this person is kind of developed as an actor. And yeah, again, David Schwimmer, and we'll talk about it in After Hours with the movies he's directed. Dude's done some impressive work. Sorry, brother. When I see you on screen, I think of Ross. Like, And <laughs> I'm not even as big of a Friends person as Julio or some of the other people listening to this. But when I see him on screen. It's just, it's part just growing up in the time we did, but it's embedded in my brain. When I think of David Schwimmer, I think of that shot of him where he's got his hands behind his ears and he's like extending them like a velociraptor. <laughs> he's a paleontologist, right? Yep. Yeah. So if, if the world, you know, Pulp Fiction is a great example. Travolta and that, that movie's almost 20 years after Greece, you know? This is still at the height of Friends. And I think if those 24 million people that watched the episode the night before wanted to see Ross be a bad boy, they would have. But I think the fact that they didn't go to see that speaks to the fact that people just didn't want that. I guess he did, but that's not what people wanted to see from him. It's it's hard not to read it that way. <laughs> I mean, he could have just decided to cling to the to the reviews, the positive reviews that pointed at him playing against type as a good thing. But the consensus 
uh, unfortunately, was that, yeah, people didn't want any of that. And to be fair, I I don't know that I do either. I mean, this this was uh, entertaining enough, but it's not like like this gave me a, a thirst for more David Schumer playing bad boy roles. We don't always have to see Elizabeth Berkeley's tits, man. It's not. <laughs> it's not what we have to do. That is that is a reference I did not expect to come up on this episode. It's the same principle, though, man. What did we, what did we gain from Showgirls? Nothing. What did we really gain from kissing a fool? More than <laughs> Showgirls, but not much at all. <laughs> uh, uh, Bunny Hunt got a paycheck. It's yeah. always good. She's great. I probably the moment of most like just genuine good acting was her at the very fucking end where he walks up and he is like asking her to dance. She's like, Nope, don't want to not going to do it while she's getting up and like getting into mm-hmm. position to dance with him. I thought that was really good. Also her smile because he goes, uh, so I hear you're rich or I'm, uh, you know, they, I'm under the impression that you're rich and she smiles because she knows exactly what kind of person he is. Yeah. <laughs> and what he's getting at. So that's, that's good. Um, she smokes a lot in this movie and I was hoping for her health that she was not really like going method and chain smoking as much as the movie makes it look like she is. Dude, even as a cigarette smoker, like in the various iterations that I've done it, I've never gotten the idea of smoking outside while the sun's out. And like, that's the entire movie. <laughs> it's like, that's, that is appeal- as appealing to me as sitting in the sun, drinking black coffee and eating beef stew. Like, it's like, why the <laughs> fuck would you do that? She's telling a story. It's just another tool of the trade. The problem is she doesn't have her cadence down. Like Ron White, when you're telling a story and smoking, cause you got to mm-hmm. like, you know, the right words, break, pull the cigarette, take a drag, that type of thing. That's, Ron White talked about his that's his whole bit is crafted around cigarettes and like he might smoke cigars now, but his whole act is centered around taking drags at the right time and blowing out smoke at the right time. Not to question Bonnie Hunt, of course, as she would go on to make life with Bonnie for two seasons. (laughs) So I think knowing everything, you know. With all the respect I have for Bonnie Hunt as an actress, I think that she was playing, like, intentionally, she was playing somebody who's not used to smoking and telling a story. (laughs) She was breaking new ground. Anyway, Jay was real depressed. And seeing Max and Sam together made him feel even more alone. And obviously Max's little pep talk didn't work, because he went home, drank some whiskey, threw on an air supply CD, and called Natasha's parents for her number in Paris. All right. I'm looking towards the end here, as we've done so far uh, throughout the Friends Stravaganza. No Simpsons appearances for Mr. David Schwimmer. But with that being said, David Schwimmer did host Saturday Night Live. It was on October 21st of 1995. So Friends was like just like starting to skyrocket. Did he just play Ross like in 10 sketches? I, I have not seen any of this episode. I was reading over some of the sketch synopsis it's mm-hmm. so weird to me that in 95 norm was still the weekend update guy because will ferrell was already on the show at that point and like um will ferrell jim brewer dave keckner was on there at that point in time it, it was just it's a strange overlap of eras sherry o'terry was already on the show at that time too so uh but during the monologue jennifer aniston and lisa kudrow showed up and got on stage 
with Ross to sing the theme song for Friends. And like the bit was that um, different people with like iconic television theme songs kept coming on stage, like Gary Coleman and Jimmy Walker. And <laughs> it's just funny. I'm looking at a picture here of man, the Rachel hairdo that just took over the world at, at that <laughs> point in time. But uh, yeah, I haven't seen it, but there's not much more mid nineties than the combo of David Schwimmer and Natalie Merchant. The, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> The opening uh, sounds incredible. It's called the Hootie's Million Man March, where Darius Rucker leads a million man march of frat bros in Washington, (laughs) D.C., which, of course, that also puts you in a time period right there. But I think of all of the friends we've covered, I mean, and we'll talk about this more in After Hours, he definitely, would you say he has the most unique lineup outside of Friends? As far as contributions to like film and television, uh, maybe I think he definitely is the one that has, yeah, I guess unique. I, I think I would use the word surprising. Yeah, <laughs> it's in you know, with everybody, you're like, what kind of movies would this person make? And then you watch their filmographies or you look at their filmographies and you're like, that makes sense. But with David Schwimmer, it's uh, just from the ones I've seen. It seems like he was constantly trying to reinvent himself and never quite making it, at least not in front of the camera. But, you know, because like we've said by now, he's David Schwimmer and he's Ross. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I told you he, he has a small part in uh, The Iceman, that uh, movie where uh, Michael Shannon plays a serial killer. And mm-hmm. when her writer plays his wife and uh, David Schwimmer plays, like he has a small part and he's, he's trying really hard not to look like David Schwimmer. He has like glasses. And I think he has like blonde hair and whatever. And, but you would look at him and you're like, Hey, it's Ross. And, but it's still like, yeah, that's a, the kind of role that you wouldn't expect. I think, you know what? That, here's something. I don't think he's afraid of taking small parts. You know, his part in that pupil is also like tiny. He has like two scenes. Uh, like, I feel like, most of the other friends, except for maybe Lisa Kudrow, like they were headlining or nothing. And David Schwimmer maybe kind of adapted to being behind the camera and being in front of the camera, but in smaller roles. And that allows him to be flexible with the kind of movies that he makes. Yeah, it's been an interesting run. But we got to come back to Kissing a Fool here, Julio. And must we? (laughs) It's okay. It's just... There's many other movies that are just like this that are much better. So no disrespect to Mr. Schwimmer, uh, Mr. Lee, or we didn't even talk about her, just unfortunately because there's not terribly too much to talk about with Mealy Avital, as far as like our knowledge goes. She obviously had a mm-hmm. career, but we just really don't know too much about her. Uh, I I think I ended up giving it two stars on Letterboxd. I'm just going to go like a C minus, I guess. Maybe even like a D plus. I might have to reassess my standing on it because just talking about it, it's kind of made me realize how weak it is because, yeah, we're supposed to be pulling for Jay and that character is just not likable at all. And, mm-hmm. uh, and he's supposed to be the likable one. That's the weird exactly. Thing. Exactly. So, yeah, somewhere teetering between a, a C and a D. Uh, if you wanted to watch a movie from this time period about two guys, both infatuated the same woman, just watch Keeping the Faith. It'll be much better off. Yeah, that movie has soul. This movie doesn't. 
Correct. Julio, where uh, where did it land on the scale for you? Um, I also went with two stars. Uh, I, I guess I had like... Uh, I had logged it, even though I hadn't like really watched it, and I don't know how. Like I must have been thinking of a different movie, uh, but then I went today to like to put it in there so I could remember whenever I actually write my review. And uh, yeah, two stars. Uh, it's kind of like what you're saying. It, it's it's a perfectly watchable, completely average romantic comedy, but then there's better than those. And I kind of get the feeling like back in the '90s, this probably would have blown my mind. Uh, just because of the, not just the novelty factor of Ross being a bad boy, but also the the storytelling gimmick of having Bonnie Hunt telling a story and then other stories being told between, you know, within that story and the the mystery of who's going to be the, the, the groom, like all that stuff I think would have been enough to captivate me and maybe not notice or not care how superficial everything else is. <laughs> but I'm an old man now and I want some meat in my stories so yeah two stars all right so that concludes kissing a fool julio where is this journey taking us to next where else alex it's the inevitable conclusion it's time for the rachel green episode jennifer aniston uh, and man her filmography is the most extensive uh, it's kind of an embarrassment of riches when it comes to looking at movies that would play with our gimmick oh yes uh, but it also uh, i think i told you it, it was on the the thing we released on patreon or kind of like our our brainstorming session for the friends are against like so many of our movies are gray area movies because mm-hmm. uh, you know they're kind of like right in the middle on the tomato meter so it made sense to have her be our our gray area episode here uh we're on 160. So we picked, he's just not that into you at 41%. Yes. <laughs> um, not quite. I mean, this is more of an ensemble piece, but I think Jennifer Aniston is clearly like the, would you say she's the biggest name in the cast? It was an award nominated role that she had in this. Really? Yeah. Jennifer Aniston was nominated for best comedy actress at the 2019 choice awards. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that answers that. Uh, I mean, I, I know we've referenced this movie before, but it's mostly for the the Bradley Cooper, Scarlett Johansson, uh, Jennifer Connelly triangle. Yes. Uh, like, a dude wrote this. Well, oh, God. For one, <laughs> um, Ken Kwapis, of course, was the director on it. <laughs> It was his favorite Ken Quapis. It was a January release. All right. So before we we go, just the this was before like the the ensemble cast shit got out of control with like Valentine's Day and New Year's Eve or whatever those fucking movies were. I have a little bit of a confession. I'm a big Jennifer Goodwin supporter. She's in this, so I was trying to get her some uh, officially entered in (laughs) Contrarian's canon. And also, the trailer for this was set... Do you remember the song that the trailer was set to? Uh-uh, no. Friday, I'm in Love by The Cure. So I know I can get that into the episode now, too. And that's that's nice. an amazing song. So uh, It made almost $200 million. So it can't be that bad, right? <laughs> uh, one of the biggest box office successes in the French extravaganza. Um, yeah, I, I... Look, a little bit of a spoiler... Uh, Jennifer Aniston is my second favorite 
friend. So I have uh, lots to say next episode. And it's I haven't seen this movie. It's just not that into you in forever. So I look forward to revisiting it. I'm equally as excited about uh, checking that movie out again. All right, Julio, is that going to do it or we got anything else? Nope, that's it. Get us out of here. All right, so we'll move into perennial plugs. We'll start off by giving a thanks to the Festive Years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They kick us off with Last Stand, take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all Festive Years needs. Our friend and fellow podcaster Hans Rothbeeser is the man behind our logo, behind all the graphics on our webpage, our patron page, our merch page. A multi-talented man that he is. He has two podcasts, Nación Combi, which is about Peruvian current affairs, and Marginal, which is about economy. He also writes. He has a lot of fantasy novels and zombie novels. Uh, you can check out his work uh, on his webpage, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S dot P-E. Or you can reach him on Twitter at mildemonios or email him, mildemonios at hotmail.com. Hans, thank you for all your support. And we're thankful also for the support of Miss Zoe Perez, who helps with our social media game. If you haven't already, and you're on Facebook, facebook.com slash contrarianprime. Give us a follow there. There's some exclusive videos you'll find that are uh, preview our upcoming episodes. So he puts those together and throws them up on our Facebook for us. Also, we're on Instagram at Contrarian Prime. There you'll find audio clips, uh, images that preview upcoming episodes, interactive graphics, all that type of stuff. Zoe helps put together and makes it look real pretty for us. And Zoe, we are appreciative of that. So with all the pleasantries out of the way, one step further on the friend Stravaganza. And that is going to do it for this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. Mm